Welcome to BuildCast, where we delve into the backstories of experts and other players in the built environment to reveal their journey and how they got built. Join us in our conversation to learn from their life experiences, to be the catalyst for innovation, and to make sustainable building mainstream building. Now here is your host and the principal thinker at Build Tank Inc., Robbie Schwartz. Tom Usher is the founder of Addison Homes, a South Carolina home building company specializing in building healthy, high-performance homes that emphasize increased comfort and durability, better indoor air quality, great energy efficiency, and the use of sustainable materials with lower embodied carbon. How does he do this? He partners with the Department of Energy's Zero Energy Ready Home Program. Todd is a builder, but also an energy rater building consultant and professor at Clemson University in the Department of Real Estate Development and Construction Science and Management. He's an active member of the NAHB, and our conversation touches on the NAHB's first cost argument, the benefits of working with established building programs, and what seeking out continuing education can do for builders and their businesses. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, this is Robbie Schwartz with Build Tank Inc. and the Build Cast, and I'm here with Todd Usher of Addison Homes. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thanks, Robbie. Glad to be here. Yeah, so you're the the founder of a home building company in South Carolina called Addison Homes. What brought you to home building? Well, I kind of had a non-traditional route. I actually started working in uh, the corporate chemical manufacturing industry as a process engineer in a plant and then in research and development and uh, kind of market development. I, uh, I'd gone back to school to get an MBA and, and really wanted to, uh, got, got interested in investing in real estate. And so started uh, buying some rental houses with a partner and, and I was the partner that fixed things. So when things stopped working, I was yeah. the guy that uh, went out and figured out how to fix them. Really didn't have a whole yeah. lot of experience in that, but really fell in love with it. And then struggled for a while to figure out how I could do that full time. And then ended up uh, changing companies, going to a different different uh, chemical company. Actually was fortunate enough to be laid off and given a, given a severance package for about four months and thought, well, this is the time to do it. So at that yeah. point, I was flipping houses and uh, that evolved into uh, into new construction. And so you just kind of fell into it, it sounds like. Yeah, really did. Really did. It was uh, it was kind of got got teased with with enjoying kind of the instant gratification, I think, of of seeing things created and, and built and then found myself uh, passionate about about that more so than the corporate world and, and really uh, enjoyed it. And then shortly after getting a contract to build my first custom home, I was really searching for kind of the best practices standard because there was nothing, right? There was nothing in construction yeah. that, that that gave you uh, the best practices until I sat through a, uh, a green building program builder training for two days. That program was called Earthcraft House. It was out of Atlanta, yeah. South Base Energy Institute. South Base, yeah. Yeah, and it was my aha moment. It was the hey, this is the template on how to build the best house that that 
modern building science tells us we can build. Yeah. Do you remember who your instructor was? Yeah, it was Mike Barsic. Mike's yeah. still there. Yep. You know, it was uh, actually Mike and and several of the team at South Face that for me, and I was still new, right? I was still learning the ins and outs of building. So it just resonated. It was like from my corporate manufacturing background, where I was with a, a company that was certifying all their operations to ISO 9000 at the time and process and quality were all the keys. It just fit, you know, it was just like, wow, this is, this is perfect. And it's all grounded in, in science. So it just made yeah. perfect sense. So it resonated with your engineering background. It sounds like. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Do you find that many of your peers in South Carolina are looking for a more sustainable or different way to construct their homes? No, our company is the rare exception in South Carolina and, and one of the only builders in the state really focused on sustainable construction, oddly enough. You know, you go an hour, hour north of us up into Asheville, North Carolina, Western North Carolina. There are many builders focused on sustainable construction, but down here in South Carolina, it just doesn't seem that it's that it's caught on and become much of an area of interest. Our building codes, our energy codes are still many years behind kind of the current standard. We're on the 2009 International Energy Code. So, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing in the voluntary programs like uh, Zero Energy Ready, um, just they're, they're pretty far-fetched for most of the code builders in our state. And what made you gravitate to the zero energy ready home program? You know, for me at the, at the time when zero energy ready came out, we were still doing Earthcraft house, but looking for something we were debating on whether to go to the national green building standard. We were looking for something that had more national recognition. And we, we found that, hey, there's, there's not a whole lot more than the U.S. Department of Energy's, you know, yeah. stamp of, of certification to give you kind of national recognition and, and national um, authority, if you will, on the legitimacy of a program. Is that authority or that recognition from a marketing perspective or from building details and how you actually put things together? Really more from a marketing perspective, I think, you know, from the standpoint of building details and, and putting things together, of course, DOE through the national labs and, and the building science solutions center has a lot of resources out there, but there's still a lot of gaps that we have to, you know, find from other resources and that we've developed over the years, you know, over our, We've been at it now 22 years. So over our 22 years, we've come up with a lot of details and standard approaches that we found work quite well in our climate zone. So we okay. and we've gravitated towards those. Now we still do make some changes. I mean, we've just made a shift from two by four construction to two by six construction, changing from 16 inch on center to 24 on center. But our, our details, we try to be very consistent and the details that we use to approach high performance in each of our projects. The DOE's Zero Energy Ready Home Program doesn't force you to make those changes uh, there. So what what is it that that's the impetus behind making those changes? Yeah, you know, I think um, for us, it's a it's a drive to continue to improve 
and to continue to do better. It uh, It's a mantra that I picked up in my corporate years, that buzzword in, in that business was continuous improvement. And if we aren't looking for better, more effective, more efficient ways to to run our business or make our products, in this case buildings, then you know we're probably gonna be left behind at some point. And so we're certainly on the, the cutting edge, I think, of building science and construction, especially in South Carolina. And when we made that shift, for example, from uh, two by four, 16 on center to two by six, we just, we looked at cost and we looked at performance and uh, the combination of, of the two just, it made sense. It made sense to, to take us a step above. You could certainly argue that two by six is not needed in our climate zone, but it, it also was a marketing differential. You know, we found that our clients were not always able to differentiate and understand how we're different in building mm -hmm. better. But when you tell them you build with a two by six wall and code only requires a two by four wall, they think, oh, wow, oh, that's a big difference. Yeah. And so you know, kind of a blend of everything, but we're constantly looking for ways to build better buildings and continue to keep them cost effective. And you're in climate zone three? That's right. Yep. Okay. Sure are. There are a number of builders out there that have never heard of this program. What would your elevator pitch be to try to help them engage in it? Yeah, you know, I think I think the the, the logical place to start, depending on where they are is uh is with energy star and uh you know step one if if that's the the crawl walk run if you will yeah step one is is energy star and uh get used to the the energy star requirements and the approaches to uh to building to the energy star standard and then add in indoor air plus the epa's indoor air plus standard look at water sense and and then step up to DOE zero energy ready. And what we found over the years is by changing our standard practices, our standard approaches to comply and meet these above code standards like Energy Star. When we once we became standardized and familiar with one program, the next step wasn't a huge stretch. You know, so for us going to DOE zero energy ready isn't a huge wasn't a huge stretch over Energy Star and Earthcraft House. DOE's just announced their version two of zero energy ready. So they're gonna they're gonna raise the bar a little bit. We're we're doing their current version and looking at their standards that they're tweaking and changing. That's gonna it's gonna be a little stretch in a couple of places for us, but nothing that's too difficult to change and nothing that's going to add so much cost that it would would change our value equation for our clients so i think you know that advice to a builder interested is start with energy star and as you get comfortable and standardize on on those standards build up to zero energy ready and and then you, and then you're really you're ready to go to any program um short of maybe passive house you know and we've begun to look at at passive house as maybe our next step it, uh, I think the key though is efficiency and becoming accustomed to the practices. So early on in our first year, when we built our first house, I decided that it didn't make any sense for us to make 
high performance, sustainable building an option. You know, it's either we're going to do this for everything or we're not. And uh, I think that, you know, the, the reason for that is we're never going to become efficient at doing it if we don't do it across the board. And, and what we found over the years is we can be cost effective and we can be efficient because this is what we do and we get to practice on every house we build. Yeah, for sure. And that next step to passive house, it's really should be fairly easy, more modeling and, and, and whatnot, more insulation and those types of things. But yeah. you have that sound background in the building science that will help take you there and you don't have to learn that on top of it. That's right. So I really like, I really like your approach, uh, taking one program at a time, especially because the DOE Zero Energy Ready Home Program incorporates, you know, you have to do Energy Star, you have to do the Indoor Air Plus. So starting with Energy Star makes sense. Uh, right. For that builder that's just starting, what, what do you see uh, might be a hurdle in doing a programmatic checklist style requirements? Because really the reality is everything on those checklists if it's pertinent to your house, it's required uh, there. So are, are there any big hurdles that they should you know, be looking for? I don't know um, from the standpoint of, of hurdles. I would say if I'm, if I'm thinking of one of the, the most significant hurdles we've had in the last decade, um, that would be getting ductwork inside condition space. You know, it's a DOE zero energy ready requirement is we've got to have the ducts inside conditioned space. And in our part of the country, it's common practice to have the ductwork in the attic, unconditioned attic, or the ductwork in a vented crawl space. And so for our part of the country, that was the heavy lift for us. And, and not yeah. just doing it once, but doing it on every house that we build and really trying to balance cost and meeting the the program standard so you know we could easily spray foam a roof and put the ductwork inside conditioned space but that's really expensive and yeah. not necessarily an improvement in performance so that's probably one of the biggest challenges that we had i, I don't know of any of the others that really you know, we elected to, to use exterior insulation. It's not required in our climate zone. If we step up into Western North Carolina, climate zone four, it became a requirement if we stayed with two by four walls. We do it still with two by six walls. So it, it's just part of our, our package. I could see that being a challenge for some builders in some colder climate zones where you're forced to really change your wall assembly significantly by adding exterior insulation. But overall, I liked the approach. It was what was comfortable for me because it is, you know, it, it's here's the, the list of requirements. Here's the checklist and what applies to me, what climate zone am I in? And there are my targets. There, there's really no, no moving target. It's pretty easy to figure out and put strategies together. And then the scaffolding, stepping up to each program, each program has their requirements. So you can see, okay, we're already here. We're meeting these. What do we need to add to, uh, to make it to the, next, to the next level of performance and the next program requirement? Well, there's a lot to break down there, but we, we should make it clear that 
the Energy Star requirements don't require that you bring ducks into conditioned space. Correct. So you have That's again right. that stepping stone uh, there. It would seem to me that one of the big advantages of working within these programs is that you you begin to work with an energy rater, so you could you kind of get some outside eyes on it, and yeah. that those outside eyes could do a kind of gap analysis for you to help you understand where you are and how to get to Energy Star. Did how how's your relationship with your energy rater, and and what do you what do you value out of that? We're a little unique in that sense, too, and that uh, after we built our first high-performance home back in 2002, 2003, I went and became a, an energy rater. You know, I just, I wanted to know what that magical software did that produced our, our energy score. So my relationship with my energy rater is a little different because I'm an energy rater as well. And yeah. uh, we're we're going through the ins and outs of of what makes sense and what doesn't. But truly, that relationship to have someone outside of your business to help you understand what you need to do to get to that that level of of meeting the requirements of a program like Energy Star is invaluable. And even though I'm an energy rater, I still call my energy rater to bounce ideas off of him and say, you know, yeah. hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing, and this is where I see it comes out in the modeling. What do you think? And that's that's invaluable. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of people think that it's not cost-effective uh, working with an outside energy consultant. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, I just think that's part of the process. And when you look at the overall cost, it's it's minor. I mean, you know, it's next to nothing on the total cost of a home. We do some of our own modeling, so we're able to save our energy rater some time because, you know, after doing this for, for over 20 years, it, you know, we've figured out a few things and, and we figured out how to make our energy rater's job a little more efficient so that perhaps we don't have to pay as much. But when you're starting out, it's, it's you know, it's like an investment. You know, it's, it's an investment in your education as a builder to understand how to, to build the best house you can. So we were talking about Energy Star and, you know, Energy Star, again, doesn't require that you do exterior sheathing, for example. Right. What brought you to exterior insulated sheathing, uh, that continuous insulation on the outside? I was actually at a continuing ed conference. I think it was ResNet at the time and was listening to a presentation by Joe Stebrick and was considering going to exterior insulation. You know, I'd, I'd been um, reading up on it, kind of seeing that approach and knew that that would take our wall assembly to another level and talked to Joe and, and Joe had some recommendations to make on thickness and that sort of thing, but said, oh yeah, that's, that makes sense. Total makes sense. Mm -hmm. So we tried it on a couple of houses and found that that it made a, a big difference for our clients in terms of comfort and also sound inside. It made the house a lot quieter and mm -hmm. we went away from it just from cost. And then about 10 years ago, came back to it and decided that that was going to be our standard assembly. It just made that much sense. Yeah. Interestingly enough, uh, again, Energy Star doesn't require it. There is a thermal bridging requirement, uh, but you can, uh, deal with that with advanced framing or or exterior insulation. But the 2021 IECC in colder climates 
uh, if you only approach it using the R value table requires it. That's right. And it's scaring the, the bejesus out of uh, builders around the country here. With your experience, has it been difficult to work with exterior insulation? I think that's the issue. I don't think, I think they probably understand maybe the performance side of it, but they're scared of cost, but they're also scared of, of actually managing the material and installing the material and, and it changing their details. Yes. What's, been, what's your experience? It, it seems to be that is that, that that is the biggest concern. And I heard a builder at a, at a conference last week say that uh, they looking at exterior insulation, that they knew that was coming in the code, but they just couldn't figure out what trade they would use to install that. And so it does seem like it's more of a sequencing labor concern that many builders have. We found that it's different and we've had to train our framing crew is who we use to install the exterior insulation so we've had to train them to to do that but most recently we've tried an integrated product and there are a couple of manufacturers out there now that make an integrated sheathing exterior insulation product mm -hmm. so our previous approach was installing structural sheathing osb and then exterior insulation on top of that now you can buy a product where both are laminated together and you yeah. install it in one step and that's what most recently we've changed to and now we're not paying our framer any extra to install the additional exterior insulation it's all in one product it seems that there are enough products out there that are integrated uh, weather resisted barrier and sheathing where you have to tape the seams Yes. That that's no longer a big objection from the framer. They understand that, oh, you say we have to tape the seams and they say, okay, all right, we'll tape the seams. So that for us has made the exterior insulation even easier. So I, I just don't think that in our experience, it's not been a huge lift. There's definitely some added complexity. There's definitely some flashing and water management details that have to, to be followed, but truly that's with any product. So yeah. you yeah. under, I think you understand the building science maybe more than, than many builders with your engineering background and radar background and whatnot. Uh, there's, there've been some issues or some questions, I guess, about those integrated products. If the foam is on the wrong side. Uh, what did your research tell you? You know, I, I think for us, we're, we're in a climate zone. My biggest concern at the time that we first explored exterior insulation was ensuring that we were using enough. So ensuring that we were moving that potential dew point surface far enough outside of the middle of the wall cavity uh, to ensure that we wouldn't have any issues with moisture yeah. inside the wall. And so for us, that came to one inch, whether that's R5 or R6, depending on the type of insulation, R5 was the key. And that gave us enough safety to be very confident that we weren't going to have moisture or dew point surfaces inside our wall assembly. You know, we've looked at going, going thicker. There are some additional challenges with thicker than one inch exterior insulation, primarily on jam depth with doors. Mm -hmm. 
but for us, that research was just what is the best for our climate zone and what's going to give us the safety factor that we're comfortable with to ensure that, that we're not going to have warranty issues or that our homeowners aren't going to have issues 10, 15, 20 years down the road. Yeah. And you were able to remove any type of class one vapor retarder on the inside? Yes. Yes, yeah. definitely. And and that's a good point because, you know, early in our in our high performance building, that became a question. Even before exterior insulation is do we need faced insulation and a vapor retarder in our climate zone? And early on, working with Earthcraft and South Face as our rater at the time, they were able to explain the building science to us and 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 show us that we really didn't need it. Yeah. So we use unfaced uh, insulation when we do fiberglass bats and, and allow that wall cavity to, to dry. We want that moisture to, to dry uh, and be able to move through the assembly versus yeah. stopping it in the assembly. So it really seems like this programmatic building process with Energy Star and whatnot is more of an adaptation of sequencing and learning how to install things correctly than really changing the materials that you've you've worked with uh, or anything like that. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. We we start when we started, we really didn't have to change materials at all. It was simply understanding how they could best be installed and applied to reach the, the the level of performance that that the program required yeah. and i often get asked by by customers what what makes your house different you know you say that you're building a high performance home what makes a high performance home and i often find it a little challenging to explain to a to a layperson to a consumer what really makes a difference and sometimes one of the easiest ways to explain it is that we're simply using products the way the manufacturer designed them to be used. Yeah. And we're installing them the way the manufacturer and designed them to be installed. And, you know, I feel a little, yeah, I feel I have, I have some hangups with that because it kind of makes us as an industry sound a little, uh, a little behind the times because people look at you and go, really? Like yeah. that's a challenge. But it is some yeah. some of the steps of this is just as simple as following the manufacturer's instructions. Yeah, making sure things are applied, installed, and used the way the manufacturer designed them to be used. Yeah, which brings up lots of issues with regards to employment, not employment, but our trade partners and their trade yeah. and their education and their ability right. and, and whatnot. Uh, how are you feeling with regards to your trade partners and? Have you had to do a lot of work to, to bring them along with you? We, we do. Um, we, you know, our trade partners are, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be here without them. They're, yeah. they're, they're essential to what we do. And yet it's challenging. I found it's challenging in, in a market where business is, is booming makes it more challenging to build to above code standards. I've often said 
recently, we're in the South and the South has been booming for the last decade or so. Most recently, the last five years have been in incredible growth and it's been some of the most challenging times to build to high performance, sustainable standards. And one of the reasons I feel that that's challenging is one, we, we lost a lot of trades after the downturn. Two, a lot of trades are retiring out and we don't have enough coming back in. But three is that you, the, the trade base and the market kind of settles to the lowest common denominator of quality standard. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of production builders, a lot of national builders, a lot of builders that aren't following anything more than our state energy code and the building code. And so trades get used to installing products and following the details that the volume of their work requires them to follow. And when we, we ask them to do some, some additional work, it, it becomes more challenging for them. They're not accustomed to that. So if we could raise the bar of the whole industry, you know, the trade base would, I think, have an easier time to install products more consistently. Definitely. Definitely. It seems like you've taken maybe that training and whatnot that you've done with your trade partners, uh, maybe to the university level, and that now you're, you're doing some education at that, at that level. What, what's going on there? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I got a very unique opportunity about six years ago to, uh, to go back to school and get a PhD. And so I, I continued building houses and, and went back to school uh, more or less full time and, and, and earned a PhD. And, but through that process began to teach at the, the university level and integrate building science and sustainability and some of the approaches that I've learned over the past two decades into the classroom. Most recently, I've been teaching in a, in a master's of real estate development program at Clemson and really teaching construction and integrating sustainability and high performance approaches in construction to these young uh, aspiring real estate developers. Okay. And it's been very rewarding. It's, it's been fun too. It's why I do it. Yeah. But uh, to try to, to inspire and educate kind of that next generation that's going to be deciding what the built environment and their projects looks like and needs to be. Yeah. So, uh, so it's been fun. I, I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. So it's not, uh, it's not necessarily just the finances and, you know, how you put to deals together. You're also talking about what, what sustainability means, some, maybe some building science, those types of things as well. Yeah. Yeah. So I applaud the, the program at Clemson, the Masters uh, of Real Estate Development program, because they have a course that's required on construction materials and methods okay. for these, these students. And in that course, I weave a lot of sustainability concepts and, and discussion, particularly pointing out carbon and what drives carbon in our buildings, uh, some of the biggest offenders being concrete and steel. And I think, you know, from the feedback I've had over the past few years of, of teaching this course to these students, it's been very impactful. It's been eye-opening for them to understand that not just 
development of the land, but what is built on that land can have a huge impact on the environment. Um, and really tying the finances into that too, like that, that, hey, doing some things that make more sense from an environmental standpoint, environmental impact can actually have a very positive financial outcome too. So I, uh, I'm excited to see what, what might come from some of these students that, that say they've had a, an awareness, improvement in their awareness and a, and a different appreciation for what impact the built environment can have on a project and still show a good financial return. Yeah, that, that seems to be the big part. Uh, again, it, it, is, it does often come down to dollars and cents, which maybe takes me to the, the next question. Uh, I know that you're you're pretty active in the National Home Builders Association that seem to primarily look at things from a dollars and cents uh, perspective, often just the first cost uh, perspective. With what you're doing and your relationship to the National Home Builders Association, how, how are those things meshing for you? Is it seamless or is it a struggle or how, how's it going? No, I wouldn't say it's seamless, but I, I would say that I've witnessed the National Association of Home Builders evolving their, their view and stance on sustainable construction and high performance construction. And I've been uh, a member of their sustainable and green construction subcommittee for uh, several years now. And I think that, that uh, it's hard to deny that we've got to do things better. There's got to be this balance. And that first cost objection that we often hear I mean, there's some validity to that. You know, there's often a statistic cited by uh, home builders associations, realtors uh, out there that, you know, for every $1,000 in cost we add to a home, we eliminate X number of buyers that can afford that home. And that's very true. It, it's very true. And I think it's a challenge in our society in the U.S. where we really don't look at total cost of home ownership when it comes to financing a home and owning a home. We often just look at first cost. And that's something that, that we're gonna have to change that approach. That's far more, far bigger than, than home builders and the home builders association. That's gonna take some, some financial industry reform and some different ways of, of looking at things. But it, it's, I think they have, there's some valid objections, some valid challenges. I recognize those as a builder myself. I would prefer to build homes personally that are down in the, the median income earners affordability range that still offer the high performance and sustainable features, but it's a challenge. It's a challenge. And so, it, it's something we continue to work towards. I think it's something we need to continue to have uh, a discussion on at the national level, at the National Home Builders Association level, and really work hard together with other entities like banks, lenders, appraisers, to truly talk about total cost of home ownership and figure out ways that people can afford high performance, sustainable homes especially in the in the overarching world and discussion today of, of climate change. Yeah. The concept of total home, the cost of total home ownership, is that 
incorporated in that analysis that says you know the price of housing is is taking people out of or is no. that real is first cost no. really the the genesis for that argument it's really first cost it's really first cost and i've not seen any analysis that's that's taken into account total cost of home ownership i've not seen any analysis you know that that's out there on the forefront objecting to more more stringent codes or energy requirements most of the analyses i've seen tend to be that first cost analysis Great. and for whatever reason you know our consumers in the u.s also focus on that first cost yeah it's it's a challenge when most consumers want to talk about cost per square foot instead of total cost of home ownership and a good design yeah. it's yeah it's true. just our american way of i want to get the best deal but we need to look at it in a much bigger picture yeah i often think that part of the problem is that we're not we don't buy houses often enough in our lifetime i agree to be able to understand all of that so we're looking for that quick way to understand it that's right yeah and and i'll tell a client right up right off the bat that looking at at the price of a home by cost per square foot is like buying a car by the pound yeah. it just doesn't really match up very well but at the same time even me as a builder i look at cost per square foot when i'm checking our estimates when i'm checking our checking our budgeting i look at it a little differently i look at cost per square foot under roof which is more representative of what we actually build but you know on one side of my mouth i'm saying that's a terrible way to look at at, at cost of a home and on the other side we use it as kind of a gut check a little different different measure but same difference and it is it's how do you get your head around the cost of of something like a home that's that's so complex and at the same time it we don't buy them often you know i've i've bought for my own place of of living one house in my life yeah and uh people often ask well you didn't build your own house i'm like no i didn't i bought it i've renovated it but uh i've only bought one house and it's it's often the 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 strange part is that it's it's arguably the largest investment that we in the U.S. make in our exactly. lives, followed second by our car, and yet we uh, we don't even test drive a house, and we would never buy a car without thinking about test driving a car. Yeah, you know? yeah. And the, the other thing there, it's we have the least amount of knowledge about that largest investment that we're we're making. That's, that's exactly right, and I think. The other element there that I've found over the years that is consumers assume that the building codes that are in place are far more stringent than they actually are. And so we don't know a lot about homes, and but yet we assume that the regulations and the requirements are going to ensure that we're getting a really good home. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not sure it's from the perspective of stringency. I think it's from the perspective of an enforcement that the code official yes. is actually doing the quality assurance in essence that's right that ensures they're going to get a good product that's exactly right and and this process of inspections gives this kind of false sense of of security that oh well it's been inspected and it's been inspected multiple times so it must be good it's it's 
I've, I've done a lot of, you know, I've thought about that a good bit. It, it, it would be an interesting uh, research study, I think. You know, the, the other similar industry, I think, to that is medicine, where mm -hmm. we don't know, I don't know anything about medicine, but there's a high level of trust that if I go into surgery, I'm going to be going to going to get quality care and, uh, you know, the, the best outcome. You know, homes homes aren't always that way. Yeah. The other interesting thing about uh, medicine is that you go in for the service and you have no idea what the price is. Well, that's exactly that's right. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. That's so right. At least, at least we have a better idea of the price of a house. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> But I think um, all of us would probably be afraid to try to negotiate the price on the front end of a major surgery, you know? I don't know. It seems like maybe we should, but yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Whole different discussion. Yeah. It, it seems like you might be in kind of a, a tight or hard position there because the Builders Association does fight against codes and code advancement, largely from a cost perspective. And I, I'm particularly involved in the energy code development. So it seems to me, and I, it's probably just because of my involvement there, that they particularly relate the cost of housing increases to the energy code versus all the codes uh, moving right. forward there. How, how do you think it would be best to demonstrate that these advancements in codes are actually worthwhile? And all the research seems to show that the cost of housing to go from one code to another code, say the 2018 to the 21, is somewhere between two and five percent, not hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, I, you know, I think that it is challenging to to have an industry like home building change their mode of of looking at total cost. It's very easy to say the net cost on day one is going to go up two to five percent, and when, as as you just said, that's typically the difference in uh, a new code versus versus the existing, and yet you still have that math done to object to the increase of the for every thousand dollars in increase in price, we're going to eliminate. X thousands of people from being able to afford the house. And yet there's no talk of continuous improvement and there's no talk of reduced utility bills. And, and we're not really taking that total cost into account. In South Carolina, before we adopted the 2009 International Energy Code that we're currently on, we had a state energy code that uh, still allowed R11 insulation in the walls and R19 in the attic. And the code specifically cited affordability as the reasoning for allowing those levels of insulation. Now that was a 1970s based code and I'm sure there were, there were different perspectives then, but this perspective seemed to be exactly the same as we wanna keep affordability at the focus and affordability being price, purchase price affordability, not ongoing operation, operational affordability. And I think that's where we've, we've just got to come together 
and look at this in a far more holistic way so that we're we're not fooling ourselves by looking at first cost yeah and we're looking at the total cost i you know i'm i'm the outlier in my industry uh and saying that we should build better and doing it i'm not the guy that most of the folks in the code meetings that are arguing against really want to show up because this is all we do and we believe in it now yeah. could can i say i'd like to build more affordable homes absolutely so help me figure out how to do that industry but uh i i agree on the affordability argument but at the same time i feel that that building better is is our responsibility as an industry, both to our clients and to the environment. Yeah. So with regards to building more affordable homes, um, what is our pathway there? I often see like Habitat for Humanity being thrown out there doing, you know, great high performance homes that are affordable. There, There's the whole labor kind of disjunction there that there, that we can't make an apples to apples comparison. But do you think that people want, in essence, their eyes are bigger than their stomach kind of situation with houses? Because they, they're not, the main way to make it more affordable probably is, is simply a, a function of the size of the houses. Yes, agreed. And it, are they willing to give up some size to make it more affordable or we shouldn't necessarily give up the performance to make it more affordable. Uh, Correct. We could give up the finishes. We could give up the granite countertops and, and whatnot to make it more affordable. That's right. I agree. And I agree that, that, and there've been a number of folks that have, you know, been out there written books about right sizing our homes and having yeah. space that's functional. Uh, we, 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 we have plans that, that are built out there that have space that's wasted, that's completely non-functional that, yeah. that, and arguably doesn't make a significant impact in the livability of a home. I think as an industry, we, we could focus and benefit greatly from uh, smarter design, yeah. more efficient to construct design much as uh, other countries do. Yeah. I remember I had uh, an employee, a key employee for about 17 years who was from the UK. And one of the first homes we were, were building when she worked for us uh, had a pantry that was probably, uh, I don't know, 11 by nine or so. And she walked through that house and she said, in the UK, this would be a bedroom. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it was pretty, it was pretty eye opening. It's like, yeah, what do you really need in a bedroom? You need a place to sleep. Let's have focus on the common space where we spend our time. And, and I think we can really shrink our plans down and find far more affordable options to still have higher performance. I agree with that. I think the other element of that is volume. So much as we've decided that this is our standard and this is all we're doing so we can get efficient at it, if our industry was adopting higher performance standards, the costs would come down some degree as well, both on the materials used and on the labor. If, yeah. if it weren't, I, I've, 
in my 20 years, I've heard so many times, I'm going to have to charge more for that because it's different and that's it. And once we get past the difference, we look at the time it takes to do it, the effort it takes, it's no different. Yeah. It's just the unknown, fear of the unknown. Yeah, unfortunately, I, I'm seeing that in my work with uh, Marshall Fire Rebuild, and there's lots of emphasis on heat pumps and whatnot. And I think the prices are so high primarily because it's different and there's just not enough experience with it yet. I agree completely. I agree completely. And, and, and I've come to, a, to have an approach that we really try to sit down with our trade partners and have a true discussion. You know, when I can tell there's something different about it, how do we cover that fear of the unknown and, and make sure they understand they're going to be going to be paid for any additional time and, and effort, but at the same time, be realistic about the difference, you know, that this isn't, this isn't a radical change. This is just a slight difference. And if we need to shift the liability a bit, so heating and cooling, for example, if a, if an HVAC contractor is concerned about the performance of a heat pump when they've largely done gas furnaces for their career, well, I'll take that, that performance liability. You don't worry about it. The builder gets the team together and manufacturer involved too and, and builds the confidence so that we can can kind of mitigate that that risk that obviously is getting the price increase. Yeah. And the builder's confidence that it's really not that risky. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You can help them along. Well my my last question kind of goes back to where we started. Uh, we met at a, a conference and you seem to invest your time and, and some of your money in continuing education and, and conferences. What What is the value of that for you as a builder and, and what would you recommend for other builders out there? Well, I think if we are stagnant in our learning and and growth, in whatever we choose to do, building in this case, then uh, then we'll be stagnant in our in our performance, and that includes business performance. So continuing education is is crucial to continuing to compete. I was indoctrinated into the continuing ed approach in, in that first job I mentioned when I worked for this large textile and chemical company. They required every employee to get 40 hours of continuing education a year. And I happen to be someone that really loves to learn new things. Yeah. So that was, was really cool when I went to work for that company that I had to take continuing ed courses. And I've found in, in the building industry, especially staying up to speed on the latest products, the latest approaches, what's changing in the code has uh, had profound effects on my business, me personally, and uh, our ability to stay competitive and stay relevant in the market. And I think now it's more important than ever that if, Builders aren't aren't attending conferences, aren't taking courses, aren't learning to be better. That in the the coming years, that that those that don't continue to evolve are going to be left behind. 
Yeah. Do you think that that philosophy of, of continuing to learn helps you be more strategic in the risks that you're willing to take, you know, to, to try that heat pump or to try the exterior continuous insulation? Definitely. And it's, it's similar to the, the discussion we had about having an energy rater on your team. Yeah. It's the more, the more brains you can pick, you know, the more, the more ideas you can, you can hear from others, the more you can talk to another builder who's using heat pumps and get the confidence that, oh yeah, I'm using heat pumps and in, Michigan and I'm having no problems then the the greater comfort you can build yourself to make some of these changes in your own operation so yeah I think it's key it's it, the danger in most any job but especially in this industry of staying in your bubble and not having any input from outside couldn't be more more relevant now you've got to get out and you've got to talk to others, listen to what's going on. And that does uh, a number of things. You evolve as a builder, you build that confidence that making some changes, despite the fact of what your trades may tell you, that yeah. you can help them come along as well. And that continuing ed and staying connected to others in the industry is critical. Terrific. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Robbie. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you for listening to this episode of BuildCast, brought to you by BuildTank, Inc. To see show notes and learn more about our guests and other episodes, visit the BuildCast page of our website at www.btankinc.com. Thank you, Ben Sound, for our music and to Ashley Owen for editing it. And you, for your encouragement and guidance in the creation of BuildCast. You can listen to BuildCast on Anchor, iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite platform. If you enjoyed our show and are willing, please take a moment to subscribe and review BuildCast, which will help others find it more easily. Thanks again for listening, and please let us know who you would like to hear next and if you have any suggestions to make BuildCast better. Until next time, be safe and continue to think 0 to 360.